Chapter Eight of *The Dragon and the Raven* by G. A. Henty. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Harris. *The Dragon and the Raven* by G. A. Henty. Chapter Eight: The Cruise of the Dragon. The night passed without alarm. The gale continued to blow with fury, and, until it abated, Edmund had little fear that the Danes would venture upon an attack. They had indeed no reason for haste. The Saxon vessel was in their waters, and could not return so long as the storm continued to blow from the east. The next day parties of Danes were seen making their way across the swampy country from the direction of Yarmouth. As soon, however, as these approached near enough to see the Saxons in readiness on the walls of the castle, they retired at once, knowing that the place could be captured by nothing short of a prolonged and desperate siege. On the fourth day the storm abated, and the Saxons prepared to make their way seaward again. The wind still blew, but lightly, from the same quarter, and the sails would therefore be of no use. With their great oar-power they were confident that once through the Danish flotilla they could defy pursuit. Accordingly they again embarked, and, loosing the moorings, rowed down toward Yarmouth. They had chosen a time when the tide was running in, for although this would hinder their progress it would equally impede their pursuers, while it would enable them to check their vessel in time did they find any unforeseen obstacle in their way. They entered the river and rode along quietly until they neared the walls of the town. Here the river was at its narrowest, and they saw the Danish galleys gathered thickly on the stream. Edmund and Egbert were on the forecastle, and presently gave the signal for the men to cease rowing. "'It's just as I expected,' Egbert said. "'They have formed a boom across the river of trunks of trees and beams lashed together. We cannot make our way down until that obstacle is removed. What say you, Edmund?' "'Well, I agree with you,' Edmund replied. "'We had best keep along close to the right bank, until within a short distance of the boom. Then we must land the greater part of our men. These must march along the bank in their phalanx. The others must keep the boat moving close alongside.' and from the forecastle they'll be able to fire down upon the Danes and aid those on shore to drive them back and make their way to the end of the boom. They have but to cut the lashings there, and the hole will swing round. But now we must see the nature of the obstacle and what is to be done. It were best to wait until the tide turns. In the first place fewer men will be needed on board the ship, as she will advance by herself abreast of the men on shore. In the second place, when the lashing is cut, the boom will then swing down the stream, will cause confusion among the boats behind it, and will open a clear space for us to make our way down. Edmund agreed. A light anchor was dropped, and the dragon rode quietly in the stream. Great animation was evident among the Danes. Large numbers crossed the river, and a strong force gathered at either end of the boom and in boats close behind it, to prevent the Saxons from attempting to cut the lashings. There was little uneasiness on board the dragon. The Saxons were confident now of the power of their close formation to force its way through any number of the enemy, and they would gain such assistance from the fire from the lofty forecastle that they doubted not that they should be able to drive back the Danes and destroy the boom. In an hour the tide no longer rose. They waited till it ran down with full force, then the anchor was hauled up and the dragon rode to the bank. Sixty of the fighting men headed by Egbert leaped on shore. Edmund, with the remainder, took his place on the forecastle. The oars next to the bank were drawn in, and some of those on the outward side manned by the sailors. Then, in its usual order, the phalanx moved slowly forward, 
while the ship floated along beside them close to the bank. The Danes, with loud shouts, advanced to meet them, and the arrows soon began to fly thickly. Covered by the long shields of the front rank, the Saxons moved forward steadily, while as the Danes approached, the archers on the forecastle opened a destructive fire upon them. The confidence of the Saxons was justified, for the combat was never in doubt. Although the Northmen fought bravely, they were unable to withstand the steady advance of the wedge of spears, and very many fell beneath the rain of arrows from above. Steadily the wedge made its way until it reached the end of the boom. A few blows with their axes sufficed to cut the cables which fastened it in its place. As soon as this was done, Edmund gave a shout, and the Saxons at once sprang on board the ship, which before the Danes could follow them was steered out into the stream. As Egbert had foreseen, the boom, as it swung around, swept before it a number of the Danish boats and imprisoned them between it and the shore. The oars were soon run out, and while the men on the forecastle continued their fire at the Danish boats, the others, seizing the oars, swept the dragon along the stream. The Danes strove desperately to arrest her progress. Some tried to run alongside and board, others dashed in among the oars and impeded the work of the rowers, while from the walls of the town showers of missiles were poured down upon her. But the tide was gaining every moment in strength, and, partly drifting, partly rowing, the dragon, like a bull attacked by a pack of dogs, made her way down the river. Every effort of the Danes to board was defeated, and many of their boats sunk, and at last she made her way into the open sea. There her sails were hoisted, and she soon left her pursuers behind. Once at sea her course was again turned north, and, picking up some prizes on the way, she took up her station off the mouth of the Humber. Several ships were captured as they sailed out from the river. After the spoil on board was taken out, these, instead of being burnt, as had always been the case before, were allowed to proceed on their way, since had they been destroyed the crews must either have been slain or landed. The first course was repugnant to Edmund, the second could not be adopted, because they would have carried the news to the Danes, and that the dragon was off the river, and no more ships would have put to sea. And indeed so large was the number of Danish vessels always up the Humber, that a fleet could easily have been equipped and sent out, before which the dragon must have taken flight. One day a large sailing-ship was seen coming out. The dragon remained with lowered sail until she had passed, then started in pursuit and speedily came up with the Danish vessel. Edmund summoned her to surrender, and was answered by a Norseman of great stature and noble appearance, who from the poop hurled a javelin, which would have pierced Edmund had he not leaped quickly aside. A few other darts were thrown, and then the dragon ran alongside the enemy and boarded her. The opposition of the Northmen was speedily beaten down, but their leader desperately defended the ladder leading to the poop. He was struck by two arrows and fell on one knee, and Edmund was about to climb the ladder when the door of the cabin in the poop opened, and a Norse maiden some sixteen years old sprang out. Seeing her father wounded at the top of the ladder and the Saxons preparing to ascend it, while others turned their bows against the wounded Northman, she sprang forward and, throwing herself upon her knees before Edmund, besought him to spare her father's life. Edmund raised his hand and the bows were lowered. "'I have no wish to slay your father, maiden,' she, he said gently. We slay only those who resist, and resistance on the part of a single man, and he wounded, against a whole ship's crew, is madness. We are no sea-wolves who slay for the pleasure of slaying, but are Saxons who fight for our country against the oppressions and rapine of your people. Little right have they to mercy, seeing they show none, but our religion enjoins us to have pity even upon our enemies. 
You had best ascend to your father and see to his wounds. None will harm you or him. The girl, with an exclamation of thanks, sprang up the ladder. Edmund superintended the searching of the ship. She contained a great store of valuables, which were speedily transferred to the dragon. When this had been done, Edmund ascended to the poop. The jarl was sitting in a great chair placed there. Edmund had already learnt from the crew that he was Jarl Siegbert, a noted leader of the Northmen. His daughter had drawn out the arrows and bandaged the wounds. "'Jarl Siegbert,' Edmund said as he approached him, "'you have been a bitter enemy of the Saxons, and small mercy have you shown to those who have fallen into your hands. But learn now that we, Christian Saxons, take no vengeance on a defenceless foe. You are free to pursue your voyage with your daughter and your ship to Norway.' Your stores we have made free with, seeing that they are all plunder taken from the Saxons, and we do but reclaim our own. "'And who are you, young sir?' the Earl asked. "'I am one of King Alfred's Eldormen of Wessex, Edmund by name.' "'I have heard of you,' the Dane said, as one who has taught the Saxons new tactics, fighting in a close body which has more than once pierced our lines and caused our overthrow. But you are a mere lad.' "'I am young,' Edmund replied and had it not been for the invasions and oppressions of your countrymen, might have still accounted myself as scarce a man. But you have made warriors of every West Saxon capable of bearing a sword. Remember, Jarl, that your life has been in Saxon hands, and that they have spared it. So come not hither to our shores again. I propose not doing so, the Northman replied. I have seen enough of stricken fields, and was returning to my own country to hang up my sword content with the fame I have gained, until Woden called me to join his warriors and feast in his halls. Since we may not meet there, young Saxon, for they say that you Christians look to a place where arms will be laid aside and the sound of feasting be unheard, I will say farewell. For myself I thank you not for my life, for I would rather have died as I have lived with my sword in my hand, but for my daughter's sake I thank you, for she is but young to be left unprotected in the world." A few minutes later the Danish vessel continued on her way, and the dragon again took her station on the lookout. She was now deep in the water, and after picking up one or two more small prizes, Edmund and Egbert determined to return home. It was probable that the Danes would soon take the alarm and dispatch a fleet to attack them. Laden down as the dragon was, her speed under oars was materially affected, and it was advisable to stow away their booty before proceeding with further adventures. Her head was turned south, and she coasted down the eastern shores of England without adventure. Several Danish vessels were seen arriving at or quitting the coast, but the dragon continued her course without heeding them, and rounding the forelands sailed along the south coast and made her way up the parrot. Upon inquiry they learned that no event of any importance had taken place during their absence. The Danes were complete masters of the country. King Alfred was in hiding, none knew where. The greater portion of the Danes were at their camp at Chippenham, but parties roamed here and there through the land. Dressed as countrymen, Edmund and Egbert made their way to Exeter, and there arranged with some traders for the purchase of the less valuable portion of the dragon's cargo. This consisted of rich clothing, silks and other stuffs, wine, vestments and altar hangings from the churches, arms and armor, hides and skins. The prices obtained were far below the real value of the articles for money was scarce, and none could say when the Danes might again swoop down and clear out the contents of the warehouses. Nevertheless, the sum obtained was a large one for those days, and this did not include the value of the gold and silver goblets, salvers, vases, and utensils used in the celebration of religious services. 
Of these, spoiled from the houses of the wealthy, and the churches and monasteries, they had obtained a considerable number. These were buried in the wood near the lonely spot at which the dragon was moored. The rest of the cargo was sent